On the Empire podcast this week, we sign up to Mr. Malcolm's list and find ourselves forming a gang of London with Chopin Derisi. And we'll be talking about the usual movie news, reviews and nonsense on the only movie podcast that is currently building a very large wooden boat and trying to round up some animals to put in it as London experiences its first rain in about a million years. <laughs> Hello, pod. I'm Helen O'Hara and welcome to the Empire podcast. Our beloved leader, the mysterious figure known only as Chris Hewitt, is trying to figure out parenthood at the moment, which is weird because I don't think he needs two weeks to watch that film, but here we are. <laughs> but fear not, because I am still joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning that they have to warn countries they visit on holiday, lest it be considered an act of war if they sneak in unannounced. First up is our very own quiet man. It's John Nugent. How are you doing? Hello. How loud am I? I my microphone Sounds was good. quite quiet earlier. Um which it's I in keeping is in with keeping your your whole vibe, with... you know. <laughs> My vibe, <laughs> yes, yes. But hello, I'm good. Glad to be here. <laughs> and we are also joined by the best dressed man on his street in Watford. It's a Mon Down to the street now. Goodness me, this is a new <laughs> shirt that I wore specifically for this part, and I'm being just shunned. All this things. Is... It's a very nice shirt. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, from from next. Um, there you go. Nice little find. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, so I'm going to describe it to our listeners. It's, it's like light blue, but wavy. So it's like some 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 flicks of white in it. It's, it's, it's a very nice. It's trend. a moral, I believe. There you go. And then bringing the. It's got a little cab. logo on it. You know, it looks like you could go running any second. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. Hello. I'm currently wearing uh, uh, Oxfam. Um, it's Oxfam wow. finest. I think it was three pounds. Wow, 15. you're so fancy. Uh, it's got a hole in it. I'm currently wearing a shirt that's so old, I have no memory of where I got it. So well done us, leading fashion icons here. Funny enough, you know, I just went outside. We're recording this on Thursday morning quite early. I just went outside and uh, there's a school near me and I was I was passing it on my way to get coffee and there are kids queuing up to get their exam results this morning. Uh -huh. So, you know, just to say to everybody, hope you did well. Um, if you didn't, don't worry. I got four A's and look where I am now. You know, it could... Uh, just the humblest it could all of bags go much, there much better for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, you can succeed downward, okay? So now is not the time for complacency. What did you graduate from? <laughs> from university was it, was it first class i presume oh no it's only a 2-1 i didn't work that hard yeah also a 2-1 in sports sciences <laughs> i would fail that thing so hard today oh my goodness i've not used a single bit of my degree in anything since i also got a 2-1 yes but but one thing that i think young people need to understand is that a levels are incredibly important and employers bring them up every time <laughs> i mean it's just something that <laughs> something that, that follows you throughout your career. Um, so, you know, it really counts what, what your result is today. But it matters when you're in the moment. You know it, really it does. Is. Come no, on. It does. So it does. It does. Yeah. Don't don't no, worry, I'm people. Being facetious. You're, yeah. It will it will all work out, is what we're saying. So anyway, our thoughts are with everybody facing this um, ridiculous yes, right and uh not, not that any of them listen to this show because we're all too old, but, you know, still, if you have kids around who are going through it, uh, best of luck to them. Um, okay, so uh, let's take a question, shall we? Um, I have a couple here to look at because one of them is 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 so geared to Amon. Like, this is someone who I don't think knew you were on the, con the podcast, but must have suspected it. So this comes from at Joe2Darwin. 
uh, Joe Darwin on Twitter, and he asks, what's a distinctly average movie with a phenomenal soundtrack or score? <laughs> now, I think we've had this before. I know my answer, but what is your answer? Oh, man. See, they, they've qualified it with distinctly average. Because I've, I've, I've answered this sort of question before when the film hasn't been very good. A film that's been distinctly average with a very good score. Hmm. Well, I guess, like, you know, in recent times, it might be Thor Love and Thunder, um, because I wasn't as high on that Whoa. film as others. Shots fired, shots fired. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to rehash everything that we said in the Thor Love and Thunder spoiler special, but yeah, I, I did you know, like that film, but it would be a three-star film for me, which is no average. Um, but the score by Michael Cuccino and Nami Melimard is fantastic. Um, and again, Mama's Got a Brand New Hammer, the first track on that score is phenomenal. Um, the quality of the entire franchise varies hugely, but the Steve Jablonski scores for the Michael Bay Transformers movies are phenomenal. Um, after the first yeah. Michael Bay Transformers movie, the quality of the movies themselves are not phenomenal. Um, but, you know, Dark of the Moon... Goes off a cliff. <laughs> I mean, Dark of the Moon, I've got time for. I think, you know, that, that I could just about get three stars to uh, Revenge of the Fallen yeah. it's got some really good stuff in that film it's, it ha- sure <laughs> um, the, the, the other two Michael Bay films what the, the credits <laughs> oh, now that is shots fired that's being too harsh there's some good stuff in Dark of the Moon Dark of the Moon not, not that I'd sort of you know urge you to revisit it anytime soon but there's, there's some good stuff um, the, the other two not so much but the scores by Steve Jablonski are always great um Anne Silvestri, Van Helsing, great score, not so mm-hmm, good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what, 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 what's your take on the question? Um, mine, mine is um, King Arthur, Legend of the Swords. Oh, good shout. Um, the Daniel Pemberton score for that is phenomenal. Okay. It is about 100 times better than the movie. I recommend it very, very strongly if you're trying to concentrate. It's, it's a great piece of music to help you concentrate. Mm. Uh, is it Run Londinium? Run oh, up Londinium. That's incredible. If you need to move fast in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Oh, super, super good. Another good Daniel Pemberton score for an average movie, Ocean's 8. Really, really good. Really, really good score. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we'll be talking about the Ocean's franchise a little bit we later. Will. Yes. Uh, John, how about you? Well, I don't know. The, the first thing that my mind went to, and I don't know if it really counts as an average film, maybe more of a noble failure, but um, one of my favourite soundtracks of all time, literally of all time, is The Fountain, Clint Mansell and the uh, Kronos Quartet, you know, the Darren Aronofsky mm. film, which I don't know, mm. I, I've, I have, I've maybe seen that film once and thought about it for half an hour afterwards, and I can't really remember what happens in it. But the score I've listened to, thousands of times it's just mm. it's just like very emotional and beautiful and i don't know you can i listen to it when i'm working and think that you know when i'm doing some sort of very boring budget spreadsheet <laughs> that it's actually the most exciting and emotional moment of my life um so yeah the fountain if you don't know wow. that score i really really recommend it it's amazing I show. don't know if that's an average film. That one uh, divided the empire it's office. Not average. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we had uh, we had the the four star camp and the one star camp, and nobody in between for that film. So mm. it was mm. it was uh, a bit a bit controversial for us. Yeah, but yes, a very 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 good soundtrack as well. Absolutely. Speaking of Clint Mansell, to uh, sl- potentially average films, um, the Soderbergh remake of Solaris. That's a really mm. really beautiful score. 
I mean, again, I, I, that's maybe debatable with that. If you'd call that an average film, um, there, there, I've heard some people who think that's better than the Tarkovsky film, which is, uh, you know, a bold statement indeed. But, <laughs> but certainly, the the score is amazing. Uh, I'm a big, I'm a big Mansell head. So yeah, is it Mansell or Mansell? I'm not really sure. I think it's Mansell. Mansell. Yeah. Like, okay. Mansell. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick to that. Probably there's gonna be somebody on the internet shouting at me, isn't there? <laughs> uh, Brian Tyler's score for Thor: The Dark World, really, really good film. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's and and that was on late notice, I believe, because he was drafted in uh, quite close to the release date. Uh, but he did a really, really good job in a very short amount of time. Oh, I do like Tom Holkenborg's score for one Terminator: Dark Fate. Um, which is a movie I I I I I I had more time for than most. I like that. Even though the Snyder cut, you know, distinctly average in some, <laughs> some respects. Uh his score for that film is fantastic. There's a track called The Crew at War Power, I think. I think it's the track name, and it's brilliant. Brilliant. Um so yeah, check check that one out as well. I don't know if this counts as an average film, but the rejected score for Troy. Ooh, is fantastic. So Gabriel Yara did a did a score for Troy, which was rejected quite late in the day, and it is up online. And it, I think it's better than anything in Troy. I, I feel like Troy. By the way, this is my whole theory on Troy. Troy is a great silent film because all the problems with it are auditory. The score isn't that great. The dialogue is very bad, mm-hmm. um, and uh, even some of the sound effects are weirdly off. Like there's a there's a scene where there's an army uh, marching over a sand dune, and it's mm. got sort of kind of clump 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 sounds. And mm. you know you've walked on sand dunes, guys, right? <laughs> That's not the sound your feet make. <laughs> I realise they're going to try and express that it's an army, but it it really. I remember just being so struck by that. Anyway, <laughs> so. I, I love feel like how the, specific that gripe is. It just, it's been 16 years or whatever, and I'm still not over it. Uh, but yeah, the uh, the score of, by Gabriel Yard is really, really good yeah. and definitely worth a listen. So every time you mention Troy, the thing that automatically comes to mind is just when Brad Pitt throws that spear one time, and his form is mm-hmm. phenomenal, i got to say. Uh, I mean, The man worked out know, for that movie. I don't disagree with you there. I think he did work out for that movie, yes. Um, how do you think that compares to, you know, Alexander Skarsgård throwing the spear in The Northman? You know, maybe this is a question for another week. Best best form, best spear-throwing form in movies. It might be a limited question, a little bit, but, you know, we could try it. I just thought of uh, Mank. I don't know if David Finch's Ooh, Mank was really, shout. like, stuck around... In the mm. public consciousness, I, I think that's maybe a lesser Fincher, but that score from um, Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor is amazing. And you know, like I remember the first time I was hearing that and thinking, the Nine Inch Nails guys have done like <laughs> 1940s jazz. What? What is this? It's so amazing, and it's like proper sort of period appropriate, um, but it still has a bit of their, you know, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross sprinkled, you know, a bit of their their weird piano like magic which i just love it's amazing yeah now that's a phenomenal shout they were coming off an incredible I mean, that that year that that few months for them was insane because i think 
before yeah. they did Mank, they did Soul as well, which is also sort of very, very different. Yeah. Definitely mm. has their styles, but it's still another very, very good score. Um, yeah, no, those two guys, yeah. they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. Wow. Coming in with a hot take this early in the morning. <laughs> I love it. Gotta get the people what they want. All right. Well, on that brave and bold take, <laughs> Atticus Ross, quite good. Uh, let's <laughs> let's wrap this up. Uh, as ever, if you'd like to have your question read out on the Empire Podcast and treated with just that much expertise, uh, the best way, let's be honest, is to uh, to message us on Twitter. It's at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast or we won't see it. Or just wait for a panicked shout out because I will be hosting again next week. So chances are I'll be doing exactly this again <laughs> sometime next Thursday. Um, and I'm at Helen L. O'Hara. Okay, so time to move on now. Uh, it's time for some lovely movie news. Uh, what have you got, guys? What has been ringing your bells this week? Well, you mentioned uh, some Oceans news. Uh, so let's start off with that. Uh, Ryan Gosling is in talks uh, to join Margot Robbie's Oceans 11 prequel, um, which is very, very interesting. I could definitely see an Oceans movie starring these guys. I just, the prequel of it all, why not just bring back the OG cast and make Oceans 14? That's what I would really want to see. And that's what would like get me properly excited, far more excited than I am currently about this current prequel. Um, but who knows? I, I guess the argument is, you know, they're beautiful people. They look really good in 60s clothing. We kind of know that already. Mm. Margot Robbie with the, the sort of the beehivey hair. Oh my God, she's going to look incredible. Mm-hmm. And they're very cool and very, you know, kind of laid back and it's going to look awesome, I guess is the theory. But yes, I, I feel like they're more worried if you say Ocean's 14, people are going to worry that they've missed the first 13 <laughs> and that they may as well start again with the familiar name. Whether it's Ocean's you know, 9, 6, 14 or whatever, bring back Steven Soderbergh to direct the thing because um, he is great. And Ocean's Eleven, especially, is a classic, which I will never get tired of, watch, of, of watching. So, yeah, um, it'd be good if, if he came back to the franchise. That's another thing that would make me far more excited about it than I currently am. Well, talking about stylish-looking films, Sam Mendes' new one, Empire of Light, got a trailer this week. Now, obviously, we may be biased here because it's about loving film and being called Empire, at least in terms of the cinema uh, Five features. Stars, <laughs> Empire Magazine. John, do you want me to write the review now or at uh, Yeah, I, sure. I, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but aside from our personal preferences, how are we feeling about this? Yeah, I think Empire Brackets of Lights looks amazing. <laughs> um, no, genuinely, it does look like a really beautiful looking film. I feel like Sam Mendes is in, you know, a kind of, he feels like he's on a bit of a roll after 1917, which I thought was just quite impressive and ambitious. And this feels like ambitious in a different way somehow. Um, and a real like kind of love letter to cinema. I've actually been to that cinema, the Dreamland in Margate, hey. where they, oh, they shot cool. this. And it is, it's proper like, proper old school, old world glamour, you know, which has sort of slightly faded since, but it, but it sets, when is this set in like the seventies or eighties, I think? Um, and it, yeah, it's just sort of summoning that that that's that that time when when cinemas, I suppose, still had a bit of a bit of uh, mm. bit of beauty to them. 
Um, yeah, very yeah, much so. I'm just hyped. just for anyone yeah. who hasn't yet seen the trailer, and we do recommend you go watch it, of course. This is Olivia Coleman, Colin Firth, Michael Ward, um, starring in the story of, yes, uh, small town cinema. Uh, and uh, I, I, just on this tiny teaser trailer, it looks absolutely fantastic. And I think we're, we're, I think we're very much in the bag for it just because it is about the magic of cinema, which would seem to be something we all believe in. Yeah. Now you said, I think, John, a beautiful looking film. Lo and behold, the cinematographer for this film is Roger Deakins. So that's almost a given <laughs> uh, with a guy like that. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and as we've just established, um, Trent Lesnar and Atticus Ross, they're, they're pretty good at what they do and, and, and they are doing the score for this. So uh, yeah, I expect good things uh, on an auditory level as well. Yeah. And I think you can hear the, the magic piano we were talking about earlier i think you can hear a little sample of that on on that trailer and it really does just add that little that little extra sprinkle doesn't it it really makes a difference yes definitely okay also in trailer news this week we had a first look at robert zemeckis's pinocchio not to be confused with guillermo del toro's pinocchio which we saw recently um this is the one that also features tom hanks and it seems to be a very faithful pinocchio movie on this evidence yeah yeah faithful maybe maybe almost to a fault i don't want to prejudge a film before we've seen it obviously um i you know i'm uh, zemeckis is has made some of the greatest films of all time and uh tom hanks is always a safe pair of hands but i'm 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 sort of trepidatious about this film i don't know about you guys i i i, I mean i mean amon you were saying earlier that the, the social media reaction to this trailer has been uh, mixed. Is that fair to say? <laughs> like, like, like the design of the doll um, of, of Pinocchio himself it just feels like he doesn't look that wooden, does he? He, he almost looks like pure CGI, like a real boy. <laughs> <laughs> it does look. I'll be honest. It it does have an air of Polar Express about it. And it's not just the fact that Zemeckis and Hanks are working together again. I think there's there's an, there's a polar expressingness. Having said that, that film has had something of a reassessment, I think, because a generation of kids who grew up with that film will absolutely fight you on its behalf. You know, so so maybe this will will achieve the same thing. Maybe this will find its audience. Maybe this will become the Pinocchio. Although, as I say, it's going to have to compete with Guillermo del Toro's take. Um, for mm. for certain people, so I, I'm intrigued that they they do seem to be sticking to the really scary bits in the book because it's scary. It's not just me, right? I mean, I am a wimp, but it, it's scary. <laughs> no, it is, it, it is, and yes, I'm impressed. They've got Pleasure Island there, which is you know one of the the most harrowing moments in all of cinema in the original. Uh, but I I mean I I yeah the the, the Polar Express comparison. To be fair to Pinocchio here, he's got more life in his eyes than uh, any of the characters in Polar <laughs> Express. So there, there is that. <laughs> but I just don't understand why they have to be so um, accurate to the cartoon. Like it is literally just a sort of CG version of the cartoon character. And, I, you know, they, they, they should have had more latitude to maybe be a bit more creative, like Guillermo del Toro has done which with his sort of stop motion take. I, I, it's just going to feel very... It's a quite an interesting contrast. Well, the good thing is if people don't fall in love with this one, they don't have to wait too long for a much different take on Pinocchio, seemingly. <laughs> so two bites at the apple. Surely, surely one of them will be good. 
Yeah, you wait ages for a Pinocchio film to come <laughs> along and then two come along at once. But yes, this mm. will be out um, for Disney Plus Day, which is which is a thing um, <laughs> on September 8th. And of course, it also day. stars... <laughs> I, just, I mean, I, I, I find it very, it's, it's very hard to get win. excited about... Disney Plus Day. Corporate, corporate created <laughs> holidays. Co- corporate created holidays are not my favourite holidays, but, you know, <laughs> fair play if we get some good content on it. But this also stars, of course, Cynthia Revo, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Lorraine Bracco, and Luke Evans. So it, it does have a good cast and, mm. uh, and isn't all Tom Hanks playing 16 different roles. So that'll be fun. Uh, <laughs> speaking of holidays, uh, which have films uh, coming out for them, there's a, a few I'd like to mention. First of all, Jason Momoa is starring as a sort of, uh, almost like a pan figure in the Slumberland trailer that's coming to Netflix on Thanksgiving and looks kind of like, ooh, crazy magic. But it does look mm-hmm. like Jason Momoa gets to do his sort of very big, broad, like gregarious, outgoing, daredevil, <laughs> actual person character, you know, on the big screen, which we haven't seen that much from him. So I'm kind of hyped for that. Mm. Should be fun. Also, Jason Momoa, holiday-based news, Aquaman 2, something, something Lost Kingdom. <laughs> it doesn't stick in my head. Something like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that has moved from March to next Christmas. We will now not see that until Christmas of next year. Shazam is going to move into that March spot instead. Um, and uh, uh, th- there's a lot of shuffling. There's a lot of news out of Warner Brothers this week. Um, <sighs> but that's one of the biggest sort of movements. Also in Christmas movie news... Now, I don't know if you know this, guys, but I host a Christmas movies podcast Say what? called Bah Humbug. So this is, so this is very much uh, in my wheelhouse, but <laughs> HBO is making, HBO Max is making a sequel to A Christmas Story. Now, this is <laughs> a, a beloved Christmas movie in the US. They all go nuts for it. It's barely ever been shown on TV, as far as I can tell over here. People here mostly haven't heard of it. Have you guys seen A Christmas Story? I think so. I think I saw it for your podcast. Oh, I might have made you watch it. Yeah, I do do that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's cute, right? It's about this. It's set in the 1950s. It's about this little kid who just wants a BB gun for Christmas. Everyone keeps telling him, no, you'll put your eye out. But he's obsessed with it. And it's just this sort of weird little slice of life uh, with all these nostalgic things. His dad wins a leg-shaped lamp in a competition. His mum hates it. There's all sorts of... A controversy over that. Uh, you know, mm. a kid tries to lick a frozen telephone pole in school and gets his tongue stuck to it and has to have the fire brigade come and rescue him. There's all of these, you know, kind of silly little things that happen. I take it back. It's kind of I a, haven't a long, seen shaggy it because dog story. I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> it's very charming. It's very, very charming, but very idiosyncratic, very weird, and very much a staple of an American Christmas. And it is now getting a sequel. So. Mm. I am fascinated to see how they actually recreate that kind of magic because it is such a, a particular weird little one-off story. Peter Billingsley, who played Ralphie, the kid who's desperate for the BB gun as a kid, is coming back to play Ralphie again wow. as an adult. Um, I'm, I'm super hyped about that because um, he you know, hasn't done a huge amount of acting since, but I just think that'll be really, really special and I'm, I'm hoping for the best. But that's, um, yeah, that is coming this November. So who knew a Christmas story sequel? I, I am, my mind is slightly boggled. Speaking of heartwarming sequel news, uh, the Batman um, is also getting a sequel, uh, albeit maybe slightly less of a 
less of a lag than um, <laughs> than a Christmas story. I mean, it's very rare these days for Warner Brothers to uh, not cancel a Batman project. So, you know, we have to take what we can get. But yeah, they've just sort of, I think this was kind of uh, rumoured and expected, but this it seems to be officially confirmed and they've, Matt Reeves will be back with Robert Pattinson and uh, they've got Mattson Tomlin, who I think was an uncredited writer on the first film, has now been bumped up to uh, co-screenwriter on this second film. But that's about all we know, I think, right? We don't know any more about who will be in it, uh, whether the Joker will be the main villain or Penguin or anything <sighs> like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let the record reflect that both me and Helen just had the same reaction to that. Will Joker be the main villain uh, sort of uh, presumption? Yeah, hopefully they switch it up. I'm, I'm glad that the Batman is getting a sequel. I really like that film. But you mentioned cancelled Batman projects. <sighs> this week, they cancelled the upcoming animated show Batman Cape Crusader. Which frustrated me on a number of levels because that is in some ways going to be a sequel to Batman the Animated Series, a show I may have mentioned on this podcast once or twice because it's so good. Um, and I honestly thought that it was going to be a safe bet because of the Batman of it all. You got Bruce Tim, who was a big part of that original Batman Animated Series. He was coming back. I think Matt was going to be involved. It hadn't been it hasn't been announced yet. But I will be shocked if Kevin Conroy is not announced as the guy to voice Batman again in this show. And they cancel that. That show better find a new home quick because you cannot, like, it's been, it's been too. Like, Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers has made a powerful enemy yeah, this honestly, day. Honestly, if that show doesn't, like, it's been so long since Kevin Conroy has, like, voiced Batman like a fresh new thing. And given everything that I've heard about Batman Cape Crusader, it was going to be like an even darker, grittier animated version of the animated series, which just sounds perfect. I need that in my life. They, they, they need to, it needs to come out. That's what I'm going to say. I, to, to be fair, I, I think from what the reports are saying, uh, it, it will come out, or at least it is trying to find a new home. Like it, it, it maybe just won't be HBO Max, which is unlike yeah. Batgirl, which apparently... Warner Brothers have just deleted from their servers and there is like now no trace of it. They have scorched the earth ah, well, no. of any trace of Batgirl. No? Well, no, actually. Weirdly, uh, there are reports this week that the cast and crew are going to be allowed to see Batgirl, that they are being invited to the oh, WB lot. Funeral screenings so they can, is what they're calling it. I don't know. Some kind of closure, I guess. But um, I don't know if that's adding insult to injury or or offering some kind of, you know, peace offering. But um, but apparently that they at least will be allowed to see Batman. That tiny group of people um, who worked so hard on it, on it will be allowed to see ba uh, Batgirl. But but yeah, I mean, obviously, um, Amon, I hope that your Kevin Conroy dreams come true because otherwise, I fear I fear for us all if you go on a <laughs> Kevin Conroyless rampage uh, through the streets. Uh, so should, fingers Helen. crossed that As they find should. some way <laughs> to release that. <laughs> and it, you know, it it does seem weird that. That obviously commercial proposition wouldn't be um, one that they come out with. But, so I mean, Warner Brothers right now and their decision making has just, yeah, it's it boggles the mind to put it mildly. 
It, it does. It does seem odd. But look, the Batman Two is moving. The, the reports were originally when the first one came out that this this sequel would follow the Penguin miniseries. So that would suggest that you know his rise to power will will sort of fuel the second film, which would be preferable to more fucking Joker. Sorry, did I say that out loud? Oh. <laughs> no, so anyone Seriously. but the Joker. We've just been so saturated <laughs> with that character in film, in TV shows. Even in the video games, which I love, the Batman Arkham video games, that that franchise went too heavy on the Joker. Call it with the Joker, for instance. Batman's got a very good Rose Gallery. It's arguably the best Rose Gallery in all the comics. It's right there with Spidey's in many respects. Delve into that. Um, the, the, tr- the, the tricky thing with, I think, how Matt Reeves has set up his version of the Batman is that it's one of those things where, again, it's very sort of, you know, real to an extent and a lot of batman's villains they are fantastical hopefully we can get some element of that if they decide to go that route in these sequels but you know i said it on i think the batman spoiler spoiler special but when the batman is you know revamped yet again i really do hope that they choose to go in a more fantastical route because with nolan and now with Matt Reeves, we have gone like very sort of what if Batman were real type route. And I think at a certain point that's going to be played out. But we'll see. Yes. Let Batman be weird. That's what I say. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, speaking of weird, just uh, finally to um, wrap up the news section a little bit, we are getting a Red Sonja movie, uh, of course, from director MJ Bassett, who most recently did Rogue, which is the Crazy Lion movie um, with Megan Fox. Um, I want to see that. It is now making. It was fine. It was totally fine. We'll be talking about Crazy Lion movies a little bit later in the show. Spoiler. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, she's she's at work now on Red Sonia. And Matilda Lutz, who starred in the fantastic French film Revenge uh, a yes. few years ago, is going to be in the title role with the likes of Robert Sheehan and Wallace Day around her. So some interesting, interesting people there. Um, not for the most part huge names. I think this has gone down a little bit in budget. Since the days mm. when uh, Brian Singer was planning to make it, but um, but hopefully it will be a really interesting, really cool, really violent barbarian trip, basically. Yeah, yeah. Now I co-sign uh, your thoughts on Revenge. That film is great, and Matilda is fantastic in it. So excited to see her back on the big screen again. One final thing before we 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 finish. I, 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 what? <sighs> They're planning a Ferris Bueller's Day Off <laughs> spin-off, apparently. Which would be about the valets who at one point steal the car and take it for a joyride. And this new movie would be called Sam and Victor's Day Off and would tell their story. Now, that is a ridiculous idea and Hollywood (laughs) needs to make new films that aren't connected to anything. However, to its credit, Cobra Kai creators John Hurwitz, Hayden Schlossberg, and John Heald are producing it. So maybe mm. it will have as much wit and as much charm as that show does. Yeah, I, I mean, if the Cobra Kai guys are attached to this, then great. But I, I just, I, I can't, I can't. I, I, <laughs> I can't, I, I can't do it. <laughs> I, I can't, I just can't. I can't wrap my head around this. This feels like the sort of Pennyworth level of, let's pick some minor character 
in a franchise that no one really cares that much about and focus it around it. I mean, just just make a film about valets if you want to make a valet. I just, I just a hippie cheer, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you've put it very eloquently. Just, 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 you know, you, yes. come on. So, you know, there it is. That's what's happening, I guess. <laughs> ah, shall, we go, shall we have a guest? Yeah. Let's move on. So it is uh, time to welcome Shopei Dorisu, who has been acting for a little while. Uh, he made his film debut in 2016, but he had a huge breakthrough year in 2020 with the one-two punch of his house and gangs of London. And punch, of course, is very much the operative word uh, in <laughs> regards to the latter. So he's followed that up with films like Mothering Sunday and Silent Night. Uh, but this week he appears in Mr. Malcolm's List which is a Regency set rom-com where he gets to play a Mr. Darcy-esque type who's sparring with Frida Pinto. Uh, we sent Chris along to talk to him recently. Not so fast. Hey everyone, it's Chris here. Just jumping in real quick. Yes, I know I'm meant to be off, but you know how things are. I'm editing the podcast. So I just wanted to let you know ahead of the interview with Shopee Teresu that... The sound quality is maybe a little bit patchy in places. Chope was on his phone when he did this, and he was also outdoors. And so he was in a public space, and he was next to people, and people were walking past and having their own conversations. So if you want to play a game of Gene Hackman in the conversation and do computer enhance and zoom in and try and shut out the Chope part of the conversation and listen to what other people are saying, you never know, there might be some sort of secret agent who is giving away incredible shit live in public. Or it might just be really mundane conversations about what people are having for dinner that night. Anyway, the conversation I was having with Chope was not mundane, uh, but now and again the sound quality does dip because it was a public space and we couldn't ask people to move away. So there you go, just want to let you know that. Also, the public space he was in just happened to be the Barbican in London, incredible venue. It's where my wife and I got married in 2011. And of course, me being me, I mentioned that to Chope. In fact, that's where we began. And also, me being me, we talk about football. Of course we do. He's an Arsenal fan. However, we didn't talk about Liverpool because bit of a sore spot at the moment, that one. But anyway, we go again. Here we go. Me talking to Chope Dorizu. Do please enjoy. Chope, I have to say, you're in the Barbican Center right now. Mm -hmm. I got married in the Barbican Center. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. So um, there might be a little plaque there. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there should be. Uh, where, uh, where in the configuration of the building was your ceremony? Yeah, up in the, there's, a, there's a conservatory upstairs. Uh, so that's, where, uh, that's where I got married. So if you walk around there after this, promise me yeah. you're going to walk around there and just drink in the vibes of my wedding from 10 years Absolutely. ago. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say that you stole my idea, but uh, you did it 10 years ago, well before I was even considering getting married to anyone, so there it is. <laughs> it is beautiful up there. Congratulations. It's amazing. Is that what you're thinking of, if it happens one day? Well, it is a beautiful space. It's like right in the heart of London, so no one's got to like, travel to Barbados or like some next ends off in the country. But um, yeah, I, I think being married amongst all that nature, the flowers, beautiful idea actually sky garden is another option just so i'm not stealing your idea so right. uh, maybe maybe we'll be there 
All right. Okay. Well, listen. If it happens, let let me know. Uh, you know, it's it's always good to have. It's it's good to be a trendsetter. I'm not often a trendsetter, Absolutely. but I should have convinced Emma to shoot the um, a like wedding sequence in Sky Garden. That would have been perfect marriage appropriate. <laughs> it would be amazing. But I have to say, you know, it's it's good we're talking about weddings and stuff because you know, Mr. Malcolm's List is a it's a it's a swooner of a movie. Oh, sweet man. Thank you. I must say, you know, it, it got me all kinds of romantic uh, again, which uh, I, I'm not often romantic, Shopee, but uh, in this case, uh, I, I very well, much I mean, was. You must be to pick such a gorgeous venue for your wedding. Yeah, I think maybe my wife had more of a hand in that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair play. Just take flowers, man. Take literally. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Uh, but it is, it's, it's such a great film. And I, I, I know that this was something that you've been working on for a while. I mean, I, I watched the, the short movie, the short film as well that you did with them, and most of the cast. Uh, also so was that yeah, I, I'm fascinated by that was that short film was that a proof of concept that you know that if, if we nail this we're going to go and make a make a feature length movie absolutely I mean like in a perfect world we wouldn't have even, even had to make the short it really was to prove to the world uh, at a time before Bridgerton before Copperfield before the most recent change in attitudes towards diversifying period dramas. We just, we unfortunately had to prove to the world that it was viable. And the 2 million plus views on YouTube when they were finding 29 YouTube account really did make that clear to anybody who was a Delta beforehand. And then Bridgerton came along. And then there was also a project, Still Star Crossed, which tried to uh, do a bit of that. Copperfield, like now the world knows for unmitigated fact that Showing people who were at there at that time yeah. is better for the quality of the work. It's better for the inclusivity of the audience. It's better at the box office if you're going to be really cynical about it. Yeah, there's no reason why the uh, global majority of people should have been excluded from seeing themselves in, in this period in art. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's one of the things. And I know I, I read an interview with you about this about this film where you, you were saying that period dramas in the past had, had turned you off. Um, and and there's, there's reasons for that, I'm sure. The period dramas, yeah. for me, turn me off because, for the most part, they're quite dull. <laughs> but, <laughs> but now and again, one sneaks through. But, but also, it, it, you know, they, are, they were overwhelmingly non-inclusive, shall we say, yeah. in, in their I mean, casting. Like, Turn Me Off is actually quite an active um, way of describing it. I, had, I was just entirely apathetic towards them, yeah. which is probably worse, you know? Like, at least if the art is making you think and feel something, then it's doing some sort of, it has some sort of purpose. But if you are just like, oh, that's a, a white wall, and then you carry on with your life, like it's left no impression on me because I sort of knew what, I was, knew what to expect from them. And don't get me wrong, like you've said, there are some that are that sneak through that are excellent, like um, Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice, yeah. or um, the Emma that Gwyneth Paltrow is in, one of my favourites when I was watching them all back for like research. Um, but yeah, I just had no opinion of them until Emma and Tamara came to me as like, hey, we want to play the lead romantically in a period. So I'm just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this this does not happen. <laughs> <laughs> so so this is around about to twenty nineteen. So this is before the first season of Gangs comes out. Yeah, we it was the first thing I shot before I went on to work on Gangs. It was the last thing I shot, sorry. Wow. That's quite a pivot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes it is. Long way they continued. <laughs> I plan to be the most elusive of my choices. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I love that. I love that. But you know, I'm 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 assuming there was a break in between of them. You know, it wasn't it wasn't simply that you finished Mr. Malcolm's list on say Oh mate, I took the top half and top part and doubled it off and I went straight into the pub. That's how that worked. Really? Okay, yeah. just picked up the picked up the dart, picked up the dart, and then just sort yeah, of yeah, off we go. <laughs> if you look really carefully, I'm still wearing one of my riding boots in the team. <laughs> that that would be that would be a hell of a thing, a hell of a thing. But that 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 pivot as well is is really fascinating. So, uh, you know, did did you talk about Emma about why she had cast you? Why was she had she had she seen you in, for example, in One Night at Miami, or has she seen some of your previous work? Because this is such a different role for you i I would say i think emma's actually based predominantly in the states and has been for a number of years so i don't think she had got to see any of my theater stuff i think it was more tomorrowly not cut the casting director who had done the work like looking under all the stones and scavenging to find me uh because like you said like like i said it was before gangs it was just after his house but it hadn't been released so those two main projects are the ones that i attribute if anybody knows me in the streets, it's probably from those, unless the theatre goes and it's from Coriolanus or um, One Night in Miami. But uh, yeah, I think tomorrow I've done a lot of the legwork and presented me to Emma as an option. And I think in terms of Emma's idea for it to be more inclusive to cast, because I think she tells a story that she found this uh, script on the blacklist and she just recently seen Hamilton in Broadway. And it was a marriage of the two. I think Lin-Manuel Miranda described Hamilton as the story of America then told by America now, or yeah. specifically New York then told by New York now. And then she was like, I want to tell the story of London then. With the, And it's not even a case of the cast of London now, because like I said before, the all of the races and ethnicities that we meet and cultures that we meet in this film did exist in London at that time. Um, maybe not necessarily in the class levels that we're depicting but mm-hmm. they did exist so it's just, it's just a celebration of of the multicultural nature of london through the ages absolutely and it, and it's a it's a really fascinating challenge I, I imagine for you as an actor because this is a romantic lead but mr malcolm jeremy malcolm is also he's a bit stubborn he's a bit arrogant he's a bit uh, you know he's a bit intractable at times as well mm-hmm. uh, how difficult was it to infuse a character like that with the requisite charisma and charm. Well, that's not something you can, you can easily do. You have it, but it must also be, it must also be something that you are conscious of as an actor, not making this guy cold and unapproachable. Absolutely. And I think it was just like, I always say with all the characters that you play, you have to have a certain level of empathy and it's about understanding why he is the way he is. And I think, over the course of this movie, it was more about plotting where the changes and plotting how he opens up and how we see more of him and um, we understand his vulnerabilities as we go along. But at the beginning of the film, he's absolutely a closed shell. So I think a lot of those uh, quote-unquote negative attributes that we ascribe to him are simply because we don't know who he is yet. We, we hear a lot about him and we're told things and... Um, we, we see him through the lens of Julia rather than through his own eyes or through um, Selena's eyes, you know? Yeah. And I think it's the same with human beings in real life. Perspectives change. And depending on who you talk to, you'll get a different view of somebody. But um, yeah, I don't think he would describe himself as that. It's just... Uh, yeah, it's just Julia spinning live. <laughs> and it, it's a it's a movie that makes you think. My God, if you think dating's difficult now, then try, try it back then. 
I know, I know. But hopefully um, that's why it will be relevant for audiences today. They will see themselves in the, in the, the quest that we're all on for love, to love and be loved, you know. Um, yes, it comes in the form of dating apps and technology at the moment, but there was a time when writing letters was the, the medium or like the only time that you could touch someone was at the dance and what that meant. And I think there's a romanticism that we attribute to that period. But uh, yeah, hopefully it will still translate the quest for love. I never thought that croquet would be a sexy game, but somehow this film <laughs> manages to do that. And there's a, there's a lovely scene with you and, and Frida Pinto in, in uh, playing croquet. And mm-hmm. again, that's not something that you can you can teach necessarily. It's not something you can work on, but the chemistry between the two of you is is palpable. And that that must be something is that something that you you during the during the first film and even during rehearsals for this one? Is there a way you can work in that and work in that connection? I don't know if you can work on chemistry per se, but I think it's just a case of as an actor coming into that situation where you're playing a relationship, just always being open to say yes to the other person, listening to their ideas and. I think Frida made it really easy. She was so generous. She's such a hard worker. And she's such a lovely person, you know, that um, <laughs> it was more difficult not to fall in love with her than to <laughs> And uh, it's got such an incredible supporting cast as well. Like, you know, Zoe Ashton's fantastic in this, Oliver Jackson Cohen. They're, both of those are hilarious. And you and Frida, yeah. you're kind of the straight guys in this movie yeah. a little bit. You're, you're providing the heart of the film, the, the romance of the film. But when you were looking at those guys, Oliver and, and, and Zoe, with, you know, with their ability to roll their eyes and maybe exaggerate things comedically a little bit, were you, were you, were you a tad jealous of, of that? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, like, I consider Frida and myself like the rhythm section of the piece. Like, we are providing the heartbeat, if you want to be romantic about it, but like the solid story that we'll keep coming back to. Whereas Oliver and Zowie, even Theo and Ashley and Divian were able to provide the jazz, you know? Yeah. Um, and they were, honestly, if I could go back and shoot that whole film again, I would, because we had such a wonderful time. They played with such freedom and they were so delightful to watch, you know? And I think we, we had a lot of fun as a cast working together, especially because we shot it during the COVID period and the lockdown in Dublin was quite severe. So we weren't able to just like, you know, grab a drink after rehearsals or rehearse intensively um, or see each other as much as we would have liked to. We really coming and being on set as a company was such a special time for us because it was almost like the only time we were physically allowed to see each other, you know, <laughs> or another human being whilst we were out there for a month and a half that we were. Yeah, you're not the first. Uh, you're not the first actor to say that to me that during COVID times that the dynamic has just changed. The way you, you mm. can't socialize, or yeah, I don't know whether things are changing even now, but certainly in the early days of shooting the pandemic, you couldn't socialize. But it must have helped that you had shot this short film, albeit for only a few days. I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, I remember when we were when I was flying to Dublin. I remembered how to, what an excellent time I had with Oliver shooting the short. I was just like, oh, I'm actually just looking forward to to being with him in this period. You know, he's such a like gorgeous soul as well. And I really, <laughs> I think we we began, began a little bromance during the short film, and I was desperate to foster that when we got to the feature. And like, yeah, I loved spending time with him during the short, and knowing that we had that sort of real life 
interpersonal chemistry made working with him on the feature that much easier. Like we were all going through this um, this experience that none of us had experienced before, you know. So to have relationships and bonds that you could rely on and that we could rely on each other to get each other through, like was invaluable, no doubt. I wanted to ask you, you were talking about research and, you know, you saw some, you watched some films um, as part of your... all of the films. All the films. Literally, all of them, yeah. <laughs> because we had to, we also had to isolate when we arrived in Dublin. Right. For, I think it was at least a week. So there was nothing much else that I could do but sit there and watch Austin, the Austin adaptation of the adaptation of the Austin adaptation, you know? Um, so yeah, all of them. All the films. Uh, so Barry Lyndon, things like that. Mm-hmm. All right. That's a long film. <laughs> have you have you finished it yet? <laughs> are, you still, are you still watching shop? <laughs> no, I'm doing it in ten minute increments now. You know, it's me down. Yeah, it's, it's, it, worth it's an amazing it. film, but it does feel sometimes like it's been shot in real time, um, <laughs> which is with all the takes. We're watching all of the takes. Yeah, precisely, precisely. So, but what else did you do uh, apart from that for for research? Did you dive into books? I mean, yeah, I did because, like, well, obviously, the book Malcolm, Mr. Malcolm's List, written by Suzanne Alain, yeah. had been published by the time we were doing the feature. So I was able to use that as a like piece of source material and get a bit more about the character that wasn't necessarily in the film. Because as with all adaptations, you can't take everything. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is the best example of that. Because if you look at how thick the book is compared to how short the running time of the film is, um, you can't keep all of the owls and Hermione's <laughs> pressure group for the welfare of uh, ourselves. <laughs> Unfortunately, one of the best stuff got lost. Uh, so I went back to Mr. Mackey's book to see um, if there were bits and pieces that were missing from the adaptation that were, I could use to flesh out the character. I listened to audiobooks of a lot of Jane Austen's novels rather than sitting there and reading them. I've actually only become a reader again recently, um, which is exciting. And yeah, I mean, there was like a lot of vocal work that we did and I just did a lot of exercise to keep myself sane, you know, because we've all been through that isolation period and it's, it's very testing on all of our mental health. So yeah, there was an element of survival before we could get to the fun stuff as well. Well, I've got to pick you up on that. On that. Are you a Harry Potter fan? You know what? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, I was. I was a massive fan when I was younger. Um, I watched all of the films religiously. I actually still haven't seen the last one. But I'd read all the books like as soon as I could after they came out. But I have sort of fallen off, as I think most people have. I went to see the play as soon as I could. I, I remember, I was at the Edinburgh Festival in 2010 with uh, a troupe of actors from the university and a, a really good friend of mine, um, Eve Parker. Oh, she's married now. So her name is no longer Eve Parker. <laughs> We had like a little quiz. We had a massive, uh, it was, all of us in the troupe, we'd like test each other on our Harry Potter knowledge. And I think I did quite well in that, if I remember rightly. But yeah, I used to be a massive fan, not so much anymore. Other things have stolen that place in my heart, be it Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings again. Um, I'm susceptible to fantasy, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> Throw a dragon in there and you're good. Yeah, well, I mean, first see the first episode of House of Dragons come out today. I was really lucky to be invited to the <laughs> really lucky to be invited to the premiere of that. So um I have to ask at that at that premiere uh then for, for House of the Dragon, uh mm. did you spot Gary Lineker? Because I know that you, you saw him recently and you were starstruck by him, so I wonder if you maybe have met him since. 
that wasn't recently okay that was at least six years ago um but no i haven't i haven't laid my eyes in the beautiful specimen of a man that is Carolinica since then unfortunately but that day will soon come i hope um no i was able to keep myself quite like i kept myself together during the house of dragon premiere gratefully okay the people who i would have been starstruck by people like matt smith or emma darcy thankfully are my friends so it's okay i <laughs> <laughs> didn't have to fawn over them uh, just tell them that I was proud of them and congratulations. Uh, that's amazing. Because the uh, if anyone wants to go check out, there's an interview with Shopping uh, on the uh, what's it called YouTube. That's what it's called. Uh, where you talk about this experience of of being at a play at the Almeida <laughs> and seeing Gary Lineker and being starstruck by him. And I, I kind of I, I I wanted to drill down into that a little bit because you're an Arsenal fan and he's a Spurs legend. So what's going on there? I prefer to think of him as a Leicester player. You know, that way I, I provide that dissonance in my head for me to appreciate it. But I think it's like, it's his post-playing career, actually, that makes me love him so much. You know, I think he really is the face of, the, almost like the face of the Premier League within England because of Match of the Day, you know? Um, that was a religion for me, even if the rest of my family wouldn't subscribe to it. I would sit down and watch Match of the Day from beginning to end. And I'll tell you what, for me a little bit, the uh, YouTube replays or highlights have sort of killed my relationship with Match of the Day because I can see games straight away and I only see the game highlights rather than all the punditry and stuff afterwards. So I'm missing a bit of Gary in my life. I may have to do some reruns on BBC iPlayer just to, to fill that hole. You know? And of course, as, as an Arsenal fan, you must be pretty delighted with football right now. Football is the greatest gift I've ever been given at this point in time. Don't ask me again next week or two weeks from now. But, uh, right now, the best thing ever. I've literally just finished playing football as well, where I uh, reenacted the highlights of the weekend. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I'm delighted with the start that the team has made. Um, I long may it continue. Just 35 more games until we believe. Well, Shopee, it's been a pleasure as always. Um, I think we'll be talking again hopefully soon for Gangs of London Season 2, in which you'll be breaking all kinds of necks and noses. Uh, mm. which you didn't do noticeably on this movie, <laughs> which is a real shame. But, you know, that's a very, very different film, I guess. That's a very different list that Mr. Malcolm is making. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe there'll be a sequel or a sequel after the sequel. A taken, but in period costume. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not pitching that one anytime soon. No, no, Mr. Malcolm's death list, Mr. Malcolm's kill list. I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna throw it out there. You get Ben Wheatley uh, on the script when we're, we're, we're talking spin off here. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last thing is, are you a list maker in real life? Do you make lists? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I use lists um, very frequently just to keep my life on track and also to remind myself that I'm achieving things be that, you know, doing the shopping or cleaning the flat or waking up in the morning, you know, sometimes it's really easy to forget how much you've achieved until you make a list of all your achievements. Um, big things, little things, middle things, relationship things, life things. Yeah, it really keeps me on track, keeps me focused and I'm grateful for that discipline, actually. Amazing. So after this, you can tick off Empire Podcast interview. That's done. That's on your list. <laughs> and then just uh, draw a little box again and go walk up to the Conservative the Barbican and drink in the vibes. I will. I will. I'll try and pretend that you invited me to that wedding um, and attend it uh, like after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> Be amazing. Amazing. Make a speech if you can. Shop A, it's been an absolute okay, pleasure sure. once again. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Thank man. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye.
Chris, again, just let you know that obviously that was the end of the Shopping Derisu interview. Uh, and listen, you know, I'm not part of the podcast this week. I'm not going to be on the reviews section, which is coming up in just a couple of minutes. Uh, but I wanted to let you know that I thought Mr. Malcolm's list was terrific. There you go. I know. I'm as surprised as you are. It doesn't have any superheroes or a Jack Reacher or a Dracula in it. But still, I thought it was really funny and engaging and romantic as all hell. So yes, get yourself along to a cinema this week to see Mr. Malcolm's List. And then check out the short film on YouTube. It's available. It's 11 minutes long. Really fun. Check it out. All good stuff. Anyway, before I hand back to Helen and John and Amon, just a very, very quick thing to let you guys know that we are just about two weeks away from our next live show, which is going to be at our spiritual home of King's Place as part of the London Podcast Festival on September 10th. Now, I haven't really mentioned it that much on the podcast over the last couple of weeks because of the Pilot 200 event, but now that is done and dusted and in the rearview mirror. Congratulations to them on that incredible achievement, by the way. I mean, 300 fewer than us, but who's counting? <laughs> now that that's out of the way, it's time to refocus on our London Podcast Festival appearance. So September 10th, tickets are on sale right now. Uh, tickets are selling pretty nicely, but we're not entirely sold out yet. And so I want to do one final push to see if we can get as many bums on seats on September 10th as we possibly can. It's a Saturday night. It's going to be great fun. We're going to do a meet and greet afterwards. There's going to be some Walter merch. There's going to be a great guest who has confirmed we're not revealing their identity until they walk on stage on the night. You're going to have an absolute blast. And hey, if you can't make it down to London, and I know many of you can't, but it is a London Podcast Festival, we asked them to move, they said no, then you can stream. We are introducing the streaming option once again, so you can either buy physical tickets or buy a streaming pass by going to King's Place. Dot co dot uk kingsplace.co.uk and by the way this is going to be as our recent london podcast festival appearances have all been a bespoke show a one-off show this show is not going to be available on the regular podcast feed or the spoiler special subscribers channel this is not going to be available anywhere to anyone except those who are either in the room on the night or who are watching it on the streaming pass. Streaming pass, by the way, is available for about three or four days, maybe even a week or so after the show ends. So don't worry if you can't watch it live, you will have plenty of chances to catch up over the coming days after the show. But if you want to be in the room, and I cannot recommend that enough, it's going to be cracking. And the atmosphere at one of our live shows is always fun. Get yourself along to King's Place Saturday. September 10th. It's going to be a ton of fun. Anyway, enough blathering. I'm not even meant to be on this week's podcast. So without any further to do, as Carlito Brigante once said, it's time to hand back to Helen in the virtual studio. Oh, and John doesn't sound like he's underwater in this bit. Don't know why he sounded like he was underwater for the first two bits. But there you go. Enjoy. Okay, and it's time to talk about this week's films. Shall we start with Mr. Malcolm's List? Um, because uh, it is it is cute and upbeat and a nice way to start. Spoiler. So yeah, uh, Mr. Malcolm's List, this is set in 1818 London um, and it stars Zawe Ashton as Julia. Uh, she fails to fulfill an entry on the list of requirements that Mr. Malcolm has for a suitable bride. Uh, and so Mr. Malcolm publicly spurns her. So she's not feeling great about that. She's feeling a bit humiliated, humiliated about that. So she enlists her friend, uh, Selena, played by Freda Pinto, 
uh, for a revenge scheme to get her own back. The plan is for uh, Selena to present a front of the ideal woman for Mr. Malcolm before dumping him. Uh, but uh, this has unintended results. And if you know your rom-com, you can probably predict uh, where I'm going with that. But yeah, I, I had a fantastic, fantastic time with this. Um, this actually predates Bridgerton in a sense because Emma Holly Jones, who directed this, uh, she made a short of this movie back in 2019. This is the expansion of that for her feature film debut. And it's just a really, really good time. It has all the things that you'd expect from a film like this, from the meat cutes to the very rich costumes. Um, but the sharp musings on love, I think, are really, really well done too. Even though it takes place 200 years before our present, I think there's a lot about it which translates to today, um, especially in the era of the hinge apps, which... Uh, I am on <laughs> advertisement there, people. Look out for a on. Yes, I'm on. I'm on the apps. Um, but yeah, I found a lot um, on that level uh, to relate to. But the performances for this one are where the film really shines for me. Back in 2019, again, we had the personal history of Dave, David Copperfield, which had Deb Patel in the lead role. That made ways for its colorblind casting. And I feel like this is another uh, example of the really good things that can happen when you go down that route. You had Shopee de Rizu as a very charming Mr. Malcolm. I think the meet cute that he has with Selena is very, very well done. It's more subtle than some of the other stuff going on in the film, but I still found it very palpable. I loved seeing them together. Zawe Ashton is pro probably the MVP of this entire thing, um, which is incredible because she, she was replacing an actress who dropped out at very late notice for this role but you would not know it. It feels so tailor-made for her. It's hard to imagine anybody else in that role because yes, Julia is a schemer. Yes, she's very manipulative. Yes, she has a lot of vanity, but even with all of that, you kind of root for her in a sense because of the performance, because of the layers that she adds to it. So yeah, I had a really fantastic time with this. Yeah, I, I had fun, maybe a little bit less than you did, but I, I did have fun with it. I don't think it's got quite the sharpness of like a, a, a full-on Jane Austen. I think that's what's missing mm. from a lot of the Regency romances that we're seeing these days is they are just, they're rom-coms. I think that's where the rom-com has currently gone. I think right now, if you want to make a rom-com, you can do it if you put everybody in breeches and bonnets, um, but mm. not if you want to put them in the modern day. So so it, for me, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't particularly witty, but I did find everybody very charming. I think Frida Pinto, uh, who's one of the most beautiful humans on the face of the planet, needs to do more. And so it's great to see her in a starring role. And having Chopin Derisu as the, London's most eligible bachelor makes a certain amount of sense, I think, when you, when you see him in the cravats, especially. So that's, that's totally fine. A couple of actors had very modern body language, which I find also slightly distracting. Again, it's not, it wasn't bad performance per se, but just they had a modern kind of energy, which kind of slightly took me out of this at times. Um, but yeah, Zoe Ashton, really, really fun, really comedic. Um, her her interplay with Oliver Jackson Cohen, who plays her oh. cousin, is wonderful. He was he was very much channeling early Hugh Grant in a number of scenes <laughs> and then seemed to find his own groove and settle into that uh, to great effect. So I had a lot of fun with this. It's also nice, by the way, it's a great advertisement for the Irish Tourist Board because it was all shot at sort of stately homes around, around Ireland and they look great. So yeah, so I, I, I did have a lot of fun with it, perhaps uh, fractionally less than you, but still a recommendation. And you gave this four, four stars. stars. Yes, and I stand by it, damn it. 
You stand by your your own review. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well done. Well done. Next up, we have Beast, where wherein Idris Elba tries to cancel a lion apocalypse. What did you guys think of this? Um, yeah, this is a whole chunk of fun. Um, this is obviously not to be confused with like about six other films called Beast. <laughs> there's the um, the film that came out a couple of years ago with Jesse Buckley. I think there's even a film out this year also called Beast, which is uh, an Indian film. But no, this is the American Beast um, directed by Baltasar Kormakar, who um, has made other such sort of survival disaster films as Everest and uh, Adrift. And this is very much within that vein. Uh, Idris Elba plays Dr. Nate Samuels, um, who travels to South Africa with his uh, two teenage daughters, Meredith and Nora. Um, and they're sort of going on a, a trip back to their homelands. Um, their, their, their late mother is from this part of the world. Uh, and they're visiting uh, a game reserve with um, a, a game warden played by Charlotte Copley. And yeah, they go on a little, you know, a little safari and, you know, everything is really beautiful and amazing. And then it starts getting less beautiful and amazing <laughs> because uh, there is a, a pride of lions uh, that has been sort of massacred by illegal poachers and there's a single male lion who survives and is out for revenge. Um, uh, it, it is literally described as a rogue lion, which is just yeah. brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's... it's uh, it's it's basically a B movie. It's a B movie with a sort of A movie budget and CGI gloss. It's that kind of very simple, very straightforward, very stripped down premise, and uh, it's it's a, it's a genre movie in in kind of the 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 most basic way. But um, I had quite a lot of fun with this. You know, it's it's quite a tense film in places. They use a lot of. Um, very clever, like Warner's. There's a, all of the set pieces are filmed in kind of long, unbroken takes, which gives it a decent amount of tension. The lions are all in CGI, and they're for the most part pretty convincing. I mean, it's like you know, you never actually believe they're real lions. Um, it's sort of the Lion King remake level CGI, but it is very impressively done, um, and it looks you know pretty decent. Um, I mean, it's it's quite silly. It's it, it is it is very silly. There is lots of like you know the rogue lion line. I just laughed out loud. At. I thought that was <laughs> that's hilarious. A, that's a term though. It's just it's like he's they like they call like they talk about rogue it, elephants, it, rogue lions. Yeah, sure. I'm sure. I, it just it just in the context, it just felt like uh, <laughs> utterly absurd. Um, and yeah, I mean, lots of it is absurd, as you might have seen if you've seen the trailer, Idris Elba literally punches a lion in the face um you know if that's the sort of film you want to watch on a friday night and why wouldn't you then i think this is you know it i i wouldn't call it like a masterpiece but it's it's a fun hour and a half uh i would say what did you guys think <laughs> the guy told Helen before she saw it, this is the most three-star movie to have ever three-starred um <laughs> I, I i did have a good time with it uh, i think it just over you know we know that he's good as an action hero and we have to wait a little while for that confrontation of which you speak. Um, but when it happens, it's, it's a fun moment. Um, and the intimate family stuff mostly works. 
I think the stuff with his daughters, there's, there's a lot there for them to mine. I wish they did more with that than they did, because ultimately the, he's, he's having sort of conflict with his eldest daughter, especially. And that feels like it's wrapped up too quickly. I would have liked them to have mined that a little bit more and really made you feel it and earn that moment of uh, resolution that they have. Um, the, the, the ones which you speak of, I think, were really, really impressive. There's one which, there's one in which Shouter Copley is like surrounded uh, and is in contact with a, a, a whole bunch of lions. The fact that that was all done in CG, I think is just remarkable. Um, <laughs> I think it's really, really good. So yeah, I had a good time with it. It's it's not something which I'm going to be rushing back to watch again. Um, <sighs> but it's a fun hour and a half, as you say. Yeah, it is. And uh, like Idris Elba is always incredibly charismatic to watch. I liked seeing Charles O'Copley as, you know, a fairly straightforward good guy. Mm. Uh, he tends <laughs> to play a lot of rat yeah. bastards, quite frankly. And um, and this was, you know, he's, he's. I don't think it's a spoiler to say he's a nicer guy here. There's, there's some shades to his character, but he's basically a nicer guy. I think my issue with it was just sometimes a feeling of like, inexactitude, like it hadn't been pushed as far as the premise would allow. It opens with, you know, the poachers killing this lion's pride um, and him taking revenge on the, the most immediate targets, uh, the, the, the remaining poachers as they try to kind of load up the uh, the bodies of, of his pride. And and it is in the dark and there's there's some scares there, but I felt like it wasn't pushed as far as it could have been. It wasn't as tense and as bone chilling as I kind of wanted it to be that sounds that makes me sound really mean um but but I, I i did want there to be i'm not saying there needed to be more cg you didn't need to spend more more budget on lion shots but there there could have been just a little bit more amping up of tension in moments like that which i think he didn't quite get so this isn't this isn't jaws as man versus nature stories go but it is as you say a perfectly entertaining friday night and we gave beast three stars which brings us to um, official competition, which is uh, the new film starring Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz about attempting to make art for the movies. What did you guys <laughs> think of this? Uh, yeah, I I really enjoyed this. This is a very uh, a very European sort of satire slash farce, I suppose. Um, the, the the premise of this one is basically there is a, a wealthy businessman, a billionaire in Spain, who it, it, on his 80th birthday um, feels like he needs some 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 his name attached to some sort of level of prestige. Um, so he decides to fund uh, a very expensive film, and it's to be directed by a director played by Penelope Cruz in a fantastic frizzy wig. Um, and uh, the film will be led by two actors played by Antonio Banderas and Oscar Martinez, and they are adapting a book called Rivalry, and that is, of course, very fitting because these two actors have uh, a, a very, very uh, dysfunctional rivalry, let's say. Antonio Banderas is a bit more sort of, uh, a bit more of a playboy and Oscar Martinez is is a, a, a referred to as the master. He's the 
he's the he's the old hat he's the 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 more serious actor and and that's kind of the setup and it is just a sort of it's almost like a back and forth it's maybe a, a back and forth between the two of them occasionally a back and forth between the three of them but it's it's a kind of arts house farce um it's very funny uh it's quite charming i think there's a lot of stuff that um uh i mean the the title alone feels like it's designed for the film festival crowd you know official competition is a term used in things like Cannes film festival and a lot of this film feels like it is um targeted specifically towards the 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 film industry elites or film critics it's 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 maybe um you know it, it it's it's made for a very very narrow audience so it might alienate uh, uh people who don't sort of engage with with films in that way but um i think there is enough there for people to enjoy i think it's it is just a lot of it is just straightforwardly funny there is just like some really good gags um uh but it's but it's done in yeah it's it's done in a, quite a sort of artful and arch way I suppose. I'm sorry, John. I just I'm I'm not believing it. I'm not believing it right now. You you, you had a three. I need you to bump it up to a seven. Okay, it's it's, it's not coming through. I'm not I'm not feeling it right now. I need to feel it. <laughs> so run it again. Run it again. No, I'm joking. Um, but uh, <laughs> that, okay, okay. That, I'll start again. Once you watch the film. What I just said will make sense, I promise, because that's a very funny gag that Penelope Cruz does as the director <laughs> of these two uh, guys, <laughs> which is great. But yeah, now I co-sign everything you said. I had such a great time uh, with this movie. I think, you know, in addition to the performances you mentioned, which are just uniformly great, the thing which is most impressive about this film is that, yes, they are satirizing the industry, but it's never... There's a way to do that and it's mocking and it's farcical. This isn't that. It's very deadpan and they're satirizing it, but it's on the right side of things in that regard, if that makes sense, which I think is really, really skillfully done. Uh, but the performances, as you mentioned, are fantastic. I love um, Banderas and Martinez going at each other, trying to one-up each other in just the most ridiculous of ways. And as you mentioned, um, there's a scene quite late on <laughs> where... If you are a film critic, then you will, if not recognize yourself, you'll recognize other people in the industry from what's going on on screen, uh, which I had a great time with. So, so yeah, this, this is great. Yeah, I think I, uh, I, I absolutely love this. I, I think it's mm -hmm. very, very sharp and very critical of not just art house cinema, but cinema as a whole. Um, it's a classic art versus commerce thing in these two actors. You've got the the serious terribly self-serious um, theatrical star who, who refuses first-class flights because he doesn't think it's it's appropriate for an actor. And then you've got the pampered Hollywood, uh, gone Hollywood, you know, elite. And, and the contrast of them and the way they play off each other, I thought, absolutely skewers both halves of the industry. I mean, this is directed by by two people. It's directed by Mariano mm -hmm. Cohn and Gaston Duprat. Um, and and I think it's it's incredible that they find such a you know cohesive, absolutely sharp um, take on on film and and where we are and not just film but just art in general, the difficulties mm. of creating art and also you know managing to be incredibly funny at the same time. I thought this was absolutely phenomenal and I would I would slightly argue with John. I don't think this is just for the the festival crowd. I think anybody can probably enjoy this. Um, it's also brilliantly shot. It's absolutely stunning looking. So the idea is that they are 
rehearsing this film in a sort of uh, conference centre supplied by this billionaire who's funding the, the movie. And it's just all these incredibly clean, beautiful lines, immense open spaces. And then these these three figures right in the centre of it. It's It looks like nothing else I've seen all year. I absolutely mm. loved it. What did we give this, John? Uh, four stars. Four stars. I might edge it up another half star or so myself. Me too. This is probably my, in my top 20 films of the year so far. I, I had a really, really great time with this. So John, I think you had another couple of films that you've seen because you're the reviews editor, so you see all of the things um, <laughs> to talk about. So what's up next? It's true. I do see all of the things. Uh, I have one of the things I have seen is uh, Queen of Glory, which is uh, a very lovely small little New York indie film. Uh, it's a sort of first time feature directorial debut from uh, someone called Nana Mensah, who also wrote the screenplay and is the lead actor in it. Um, and she plays uh, a doctoral student at Columbia University um, who inherits her mother's Christian bookshop in the Bronx when when her mother dies suddenly. And it's just a really beautiful film. I, I really can't recommend it enough. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a love letter to her heritage as a second generation Ghanaian American woman. Um, uh, but it's just it's just very beautifully done. It's a very New York indie kind of film, uh, beautifully shot on thirty five mil, and um, yeah, it's it's. I, I don't want to say too much uh, to spoil it for the, your viewing experience, but it's just yeah, it's it's lovely and quiet, and and uh, hopefully we can see more things from Nanomancer in the future. Um, and the other thing to talk about, which is very different, is a film called Samaritan, <laughs> which is on Prime Video. And this one is also a superhero film with Sylvester Stallone as a sort of aging, retired superhero called Samaritan, um, who uh, defeats his brother, who is called Nemesis in battle years earlier, and then he's he's brought out of retirement by a small boy. Um, and this one is fine. It's it's fine. It's it's like a superhero movie that was made in the nineties before the MCU and everything else. Uh, it feels like you know the superhero boom has passed it by, and it's just sort of slightly. Slightly. <laughs> no, it, it is 100% pure undiluted cheese. Uh, yes, no, that's... I, I, it, it, I, I, I thought it was fine. What did you think of it, Amon? Yeah, I, I, I think you had a better time with this than I did. Um, the, the, the cheese was overwhelming for me. <laughs> whoa, whoa, think... whoa. Let's not drag cheese into this, okay? Cheese is great. <laughs> It's true. It's true. But yeah, I think Sly is uh, you know, steady enough in the lead role, but it wasn't enough to elevate this movie for me. Um, as you say, it, it, it feels like it came out at the wrong time. All right. And what did we give that, John? Um, I'm, I, I'm still writing the review, um, so I don't know. Uh, I'm between a two and a three. I'm it's probably going to go John. three because it's I'm feeling generous. Let, let me help you out. It's a two. <laughs> okay, well, that is either a recommendation yeah. or not a recommendation then for uh, Samaritan. Um, and that is it for this week's Empire podcast. Join us next week for more film related fun when we will be joined, I believe, 
by Michael Actual Flatley. Oh yeah, baby. We are going to be river dancing up in this joint next week. Wait till you hear it. (laughs) And of course, Blackbirding, which is his new film that he'll be joining us to talk about. But until then, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from John. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Amon. Peace. And it is goodbye from me. I'm off to listen to some Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross because I hear (laughs) that they're quite good. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.